Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to The Captain's Collective, a podcast dedicated to interviewing fishing captains and other outdoor industry leaders. In today's episode, I sit down with C.A. Richardson of Flats Glass University and discuss how he got into fishing and how he built the incredible business that he has today. In this podcast, we discuss his humble upbringing, wading Florida's waters as a child, and how, as a seasoned angler, he has devoted himself to being a fishing coach. We also discuss an incredible rib recipe for the Traeger that I included in a blog post at captainscollective.com, along with some travel and dining recommendations for the Crystal River area that CA calls home. I know that you're going to gain a ton from our time together, and I hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Hank said you won. I grabbed my dad by his face and kissed him on the mouth, and you, I couldn't have smiled harder. My lips were past my ears. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people, and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. Beep, 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 So what Grandpa and Dad would tell me was like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water. That's where he's going to be. Well, hey, CA, thanks for letting me come over and spend in the morning with you. Hey, but I've learned more about Hunter Levine and Captain's Collective than I ever thought I would in such a short period of time. I've been a fan of the podcast for about the last year, and I, I listened to one or two of your shows early on, and then when I met you at iCast, and Cameron says, I listen to that iCast, and Cameron's my son, I was like, you know, that's pretty cool that he asked us to be on there. I'm going to look forward to that that day when we actually do it. And and I never I never imagined that you would come to me. I just figured I was going to have to be up in the panhandle somewhere meeting you. No, no. That's part of the fun for me is to be able to come into the city. You know, you helped us get a nice spot at the plantation. Went last night to the crab plant. Oh, Crystal River is small town USA. That, that was the big attraction for me moving here from a metropolitan zone like Tampa Bay. It was old Florida. The fishing was still fantastic here. It has an old school feel. You know, there's there's not a lot of big commercial places. There's not chilies here and outbacks and things like mm-hmm. that. A lot of local restaurants, a lot of down home people here. And, uh, you know, moving from a county that had one million people in it to moving to a county that has 150,000 people in it, very refreshing. And, and to me, I love this area of the coast also because it has so much just when I texted you last night, we got to the hotel, we had all our food out and I texted you and you said, that's, that's what it's all about. Old Florida and families and everyone's smiling. That, that's really what this area is about. I mean, it offers so much. We have rivers, we have springs, we have, you know, basically a coastline that is very, very unique, you know, uh, cypress hammocks and pine trees and salt marsh and fresh and salt water mix 
Uh, you can catch bass at the head of the river and then run down river and go catch a redfish all in 25 minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, we've got the manatees here. We have a lot of festivals and, uh, everyone lives here. Young families, uh, there's a lot of veterans that retire to this area. So I meet a lot of the guys at the fishing clubs, um, that, you know, are, they're not World War II veterans, but they're Vietnam veterans or veterans of the Middle East wars. And it's, it's interesting to see the, the dichotomy of this zone of all the different people that live here. It's just not, it's not a hipster town by any stretch no. of the mean. Uh, you know, I live in what I call a suburban rural area out here in, in Pine Ridge where it's, we have 30 odd miles of, of horse trails through here. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the properties are kind of large you can have a fire pit. You can have a horseshoe pit. You know, if you want to, if you want to shoot ammunition on your property, you can shoot ammunition mm-hmm. on your property. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind, of, it's kind of the old feel, old Florida feel. You know, you're not mm-hmm. living in the city anymore. And and I love 19, you know, because I I fish all along. And a, 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 the little secret is like everybody around here in this little stretch of Florida, all the way up to where I'm at, all the way past Apalachicola. You know, it's a very transient fishing group where you know, people are moving to, to be where, where things are hot and fired up and you'll be at 4am at a gas station somewhere and there'll be, you know, three boats getting ready to fill up and go out. And those boats will be from Crystal River to Apalachicola to the, everybody's, yeah, you know, Gainesville, Tallahassee, Ocala, uh, and they're running to Horseshoe Beach and they're, you know, they're running to Fish Cedar Key and, those are their stomping grounds. I mean, they may have to travel an hour and a half to get there, but they mm-hmm. don't mind because the fishing is so good. And it's it's you know, it's really kind of remote in a, mm-hmm. in a in a sense, it's very remote. You're not going to have the conveniences of marinas and uh, seaside cafes or intercoastal cafes that you mm-hmm. do uh, for instance in Pinellas County. It's like, "Oh, well, the fishing's slow. Let's let's go grab a beer and a fried grouper sandwich. You you don't have that here. You run out there, you're fishing. Mm -hmm. You're serious about fishing because there's not, I mean, you might be able to stop at a fish house or an oyster house on the way in somewhere on the road, but that's as close as you're going to get. There is no, there are no modern conveniences along this shore here. So how did you get into fishing? Because did you grow up in South Florida? I I actually was born in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. Um, But my grandparents lived in Pinellas County. They lived in Dunedin, Florida. And my mom and dad moved to St. Petersburg. Um, This probably was like 1966, 1967. So I was about a year, year and a half old when we moved to Pinellas County. I went to primary school in Pinellas County. I went to high school in Pinellas County. I went to St. Pete Junior College in Pinellas County. My siblings were born in Pinellas County. So when people think of C.A. Richardson, they think of, okay, well, he's he, he's a homegrown native Florida boy from Pinellas County, St. Pete. Mm-hmm. And uh, St. Pete was very different back then. The population was small. You know, it was just kind of a beach. You know, we used to, beach community, we used to laugh. It was the home of the newlywed or the nearly dead. It was where all the retirees went. You <laughs> know, that's why they a fil- billboard? <laughs> yeah, well, it's just where they filmed yeah. Cocoon. And mm-hmm. it was just one of those places that was easy to grow up in. And now you go to St. Petersburg and it, you, you, you would be mistaken. You'd almost think, wow, I must be in South Beach or somewhere in Southeast Florida, you know, along that busy coast there mm-hmm. because it's grown. I mean, martini bars, wine bars, five-star restaurants, international chefs, uh, hotels that are three and $400 a night. It's expensive to live there. Property values are 
five times what they were when we were growing up. It's just it's it's just exploded. Uh, waits for restaurants can be as long as an hour, and you're drinking twelve to fifteen dollar craft cocktails at the bar. Yeah, I mean that's just what it's turned. And if you are in the scene, you know that's great. But you know when I grew up in Pinellas County, we wore Wranglers and Lee jeans mm-hmm. and plaid shirts and Sundex. Uh, board shorts playing volleyball on the beaches and that has changed so much now that when you go there you're like wow you feel like you're in a high-end resort town and it's just it's not who I was anymore I I struggled the last 10 years of you know I wanted to to move somewhere but I just I wanted to move somewhere really further north than Mm -hmm. I am even now and my wife wanted to move further south I mean she she grew up loving the Keys. Her father took mm-hmm. her to the Keys all the time. She wanted to live closer to South Florida, where it would be closer to the Keys, and could visit them on a day day trip most of the time going down there. Um, but I told her I was like, a thousand people a day moved to Florida, and the the road between Tampa Bay and Orlando going south gets more full of people all the time. I yeah. mean it. It doesn't have to be rush hour now. It could be two o'clock in the afternoon, and you might be in a three-hour delay because, you know, a helicopter's got to land because there was an overturned fuel truck or something like that. That's how many people live here now. But the this, the north central part of the state and where you're from is basically like South Alabama, South Georgia. It's mm-hmm. quiet. There's not nearly as many people now. We don't have the white sand beaches and all the the amenities that those places have south of here. But uh, but I'm at that point in my life where I don't need that mm-hmm. really anymore either. I'm very settled. My kids have, you know, gone to college now and they're on their own. And um, my wife and I love the outdoors, and and this is what we would rather be doing. You mm-hmm. know, outdoor outdoor life, outdoor cooking, and uh, sitting at that fire pit out there at, in the evening time. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we like to do. When did you get into fishing? Was that something you did as a kid? Or? Yeah, small small boy. Um, Growing up in the 1970s, uh, there was the energy crisis, and there was uh, it, it was it was a recession that was similar to what we had in 2008 mm. and 2009. It was construction was down, um, home values were down, people were out of work, high unemployment. It was just not a really great time. My father was in. Uh, construction and he was doing every odd job driving a cab doing whatever he had to do to to make enough money to keep things going and our entertainment our family entertainment on the weekends uh, was basically going fishing Uh, going to the beach wade fishing doing this and I obsessed about it now my my two siblings not so much but uh, but I obsessed about fishing. Fishing to me at that age, as a, a four, five, six, seven, eight year old kid, and and going through the teen years, uh, you know the the awkward years. Fishing for me was a total escape. It didn't matter how things were at home, or if if you weren't the most popular kid, you know the the kids deal with all these anxieties now. I didn't have those anxieties. I just went fishing and. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes I went fishing by myself because I didn't have any friends that were invested in it the way I would. I, I would want to start early and not come home until the end of the day. And they'd want to do it for a few hours and then they'd want to go shoot hoops or let's go play mm-hmm. flag football or something like that. But for me, as long as I can remember, fishing has always been on 
just right there. I mean, it's what I want to do. It's, I mean, recently, here I am all these years later, I had a little surgery earlier this in December, and I haven't been able to fish in the last four weeks. I'm going mm-hmm. fishing on Monday. I cannot tell you how excited I am. Mm-hmm. to go fishing because I haven't, you know, the doctor didn't clear me. You know, like 30 days has got to go by, then you can get back on a boat. 30 more days go by, you can start push pulling a boat. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about going fishing on, on Monday. But I've it, fishing for me is always like something brand new. Mm-hmm. It, every day I go, I still learn things. I mean, I learn things all the time. Ever since I was a kid, it was like I'd want to do something different. My, my dad, you know, back then everyone fished with shrimp or we'd, we call them shiners, which were pinfish. Um, the, the whole pilchard thing wasn't as big a deal um, back in those days as it is now. Most people fish with, with just shiners and finger mullet and, and shrimp. And then, the, the, you know, in, later on, getting into the 80s, then the white bait thing exploded. But, uh, but I always, all the guys that I related to as a child were bass fishing p- personalities that were on television. So I always wanted to fish the way they did. So I would help my dad catch bait, you know, yeah. whether we were cast net and bait and getting pinfish or seining bait sometimes on the beaches. And then just as soon as he got his bait buckets full and started wading out there and throwing a big rod uh, with a cork on top, I'd, I'd walk down the bar and I'd, I'd just be swinging a bait caster, trying to catch a trout, trying to catch a redfish. And he'd always just shake his head like I was wasting my time. But that obsession with with fishing artificials started early on. Mm-hmm. And the more he tried to curb my appetite for it, the hungrier I got to prove to him that I could catch more fish doing what I'm doing than he could do what he was doing. And and that, that finally came to light, I think, for him, even after a few years. It's like, you know, he's sick for this stuff. He wants to do it all the time. Mm-hmm. When did you decide that you wanted to become a guide? That didn't happen till later on. Um, I was selfish. I wanted to fish for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fished a lot of the the local small tournament circuits and things like that, and uh, did not did not see myself wanting to take people fishing for a living. Never really saw that. Didn't really see that until I got, you know, late in my twenties, basically early thirties before I really decided to make that move and get a captain's license and be a guide. Before that, I was just tournament fishing, um, mostly for me. And the ironic thing with my style of guiding is I started out like every fishing guide does, you know, capturing live bait, making sure clients were catching fish, and and doing the corporate, you know, trips with the older guides mm-hmm. that are like, hey, you know, we're going to put together, you know, 10 guide boats, and we're going to have these people... And you're fishing with different people all the time. But it wasn't my style of fishing because when I was fishing for me, I wasn't fishing that way at all. Mm-hmm. I, you know, And it just seemed because I was so uh, used to the fact that my boat was always super clean, cleaner than most, mm-hmm. uh, getting bombing out with grass and scales and you know having to keep live well pumps and good working order and stuff like that, it just I just kept shaking my head. I was like, God. I just don't see myself doing this forever. I just, I, I can't see myself doing this forever. And one day, this is probably like mm, 1999, 2000, probably about year 2000, which is 20 years ago now. Uh, John Oliverio, who is, is the guy that invented the power pole. Uh, I was having a power pole put on at Fine Line Marine. And I showed him a piece of paper and I was like, you know, John, I'm thinking 
I'm thinking this whole this whole guiding thing for me. I, I I need to start a fishing school. If I could start a fishing school, I think I could get enough clients out of it that they'd start fishing the way that I wanted to, just with artificials. Because mm-hmm. no one really does that right now. I just feel like I'm doing what everybody else is doing. I was like, I just, even if I only get ten or twelve people to a class and teach them how to fish, if I could get one person out of each one of those classes that really wanted to client fish with me. It, it'd probably take a few, a little while, maybe a year or two or three, but I could probably have a decent client base that would just fish artificials. He goes, well, so why haven't you done it already? That was his question to mm-hmm. me. And that was, that was kind of the, the, the fire that I, I just needed John to tell me it was a good idea because mm-hmm. a lot of us, just not myself, but a lot of us look to John and when John, John seems like he never makes a bad decision. I know he knows he makes bad decisions, but the rest of us, he's got the rest of us fooled that he never makes a mm-hmm. bad move. He always, he's the kind of guy that if you throw him out of a four-story building, he'll probably land on his feet you know, in some soft spot and nothing ever happens to him. I mean, mm-hmm. John just always, of all of us back then, always made the right decision. So uh, him giving me the, the encouragement to do it, even though... We're basically the same age. In fact, I'm probably a year or two older than John. Uh, that was enough for me to get me going. Mm-hmm. And that, now, whether he knows that or not, maybe not. But almost every really important business decision I made early on with Flats Class, I always would call him when I made a major change. John, what would you do? And John would give me the benefit of, of advice. He may think that I was asking 25 people. But his, uh, his advice always held the mm. most water with me, the most weight for me, because I know John doesn't, doesn't take decisions lightly. And he would always encourage me, too, uh, even as I progressed and I became a television host and stuff. He goes, so what's the next big thing? What's the big thing that's going to change the game for you? What's the game changer thing? And it would always get me thinking, I don't know, what is it? Right, right now... Um, we're more than a TV show. You know, we're adding prongs to the business. Mm-hmm. So I'm anxious to have my next conversation with John. It's like, I think I got the next, I, got, I think I'm thinking about the next great thing. And yeah. just, just to get his two cents. Mm-hmm. So. I, and I have a couple of people like that, that I call and get advice from. And one of them's help Hell's Bay guy, Gray Drummond, mutual. Oh know, yeah. And uh smart guy. I drove over to meet with Gray you know, and wanted to spend some time with him just on a, on a coaching kind of mentor level. And, um, you know, was talking with him and he, he was kind of just, it's the same type of thing where like he, I just needed to have somebody come in and say, keep on the grind, keep working, keep doing it. And I think too, I've noticed that with people in the fishing industry who are really successful, whether it's guiding, whether it's television, they, they have that mentality that they're going to grind really hard, but they very much will find older people and look up to them and then take their advice seriously. That's right. We all, we all learn. You you can't learn enough with just the mistakes that you make. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. Even, even the simplest fishing stuff, you, you, you learn from not only your mistakes, but by learning and listening to others that have made mistakes before you. And that, that's really a, a wise thing to, to, to take advantage of. Um, my son makes that comment to me all the time. He likes to talk to a bunch of different people and a bunch of different businesses to understand what the pitfalls are. You know, how'd you make it? And then how did this guy make it? And how mm-hmm. did you make it pop? And 
he always says, Pops, you, you, make, you make everything work out. Everyone thinks that it just falls downhill for you, but they don't understand how hard you grind. Mm-hmm. I mean, you work seven days a week. I mean, you work as a guide, you work as a teacher, you work as a, uh, as, as a show guy, you work, you work as, you know, you work, you're always working social media now. Mm-hmm. It's like every day there's something on the schedule to accomplish. It's like, you don't like to take days off and it's true. I mean, I'm really invested in, fortunately for me, I had the type of family, um, you know, my wife supports, you know, supported me in doing all of this because without, without that kind of freedom, you mm-hmm. could never make relationships work. You could never make your family work because I mean, they have allowed me to become who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, without all of those people being behind me, I would have never been able to attain this. I'd be too busy, you know, figuring out why is my life falling apart instead of me being focused on being Mr. Flats class, figuring this out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's it's it's. I look back now and I was like, I don't know how the heck I got here. I really do. not sometimes well, take me back to those old classes where you're talking about oh, going out they, and trying to assemble twelve people together. Oh yeah, those. I I still have uh, a good friend named Will Palmer, uh, and he's quite the character. Will is about seventy five years old now, and he was my age when he came to may, maybe a year or two younger than me, because I'm fifty five now when he came to the first flats class school. It was at Holy Mackerel Tackle in, uh, in Pinellas Park, Florida. Mm-hmm. And there was about nine or 10 people in seats in front of me. And I've got a white board and I'm talking scenario. Were you pumped though? I, I feel like I'd be pumped to have my first class have. I was, I was pumped because I was always that, that young guy that liked to articulate and communicate to people how they could be better because it's like, hey, this is what I'm figuring out. This is working for me. Mm-hmm. And where a lot of professional fishermen or professional fishing guides, they know what they do well. They understand what they do well, and they put clients on fish every day. But they don't communicate that to the client. They mm-hmm. need the client to be kind of dependent, codependent on them. So even though they know it innately, they don't feel the need to express it. You know, they don't say why this happens, you know, because when the wind and the tide get in this direction, it speeds up around this point, And that's why those snooks sit there on that end of that point. But they don't tell them that all the, for all that client knows is, oh, the snook are always on that point. Well, they're not always on that point. The guide knows when they're on that point, but the client doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And what I was doing is I was giving away the nitty gritty, you know, the holy grail truth. This is, this is why they do this. And when I would see people really look and they're like, yeah, you know, he's right. I've never really put that together. Well, it was easier for me to put it together because I was spending zillions of hours, just zillions of hours on the water all the time. And for someone who can only go on a Saturday or only go, you know, two or three times a month, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. So if I'm working on my jigsaw puzzle and I'm working on it every day, I've got all my reds over here, I got my greens over here, got my blues over here, and now I've got all my edge pieces like subset it out of those mm-hmm. colors. So I'm going to put this jigsaw in, and that I'm dating myself, guys, right there. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you because no one does jigsaw puzzles anymore. But mm-hmm. just to give you an idea, they have like an iPad version. Or yeah, something. they have an iPad version of the jigsaw puzzle. But uh, but if if you're just a weekend warrior or a family man and you're only going to get to do serious fishing every once in a while. 
well, your jigsaw puzzle pieces are just out there and you don't have time to sort them out or anything like that. You're just trying to, oh, these two pieces look like they go together. So that's kind of the, the, uh, the analogy that I'm trying to use. Mm-hmm. It was easy for me to communicate this. And because uh, I just had the, the skill set as far as talking to people, I was really comfortable with talking with people, it was easy for me to pass that info on to them. So mm-hmm. it gave me kind of an advantage. I can remember I, I took a communications class at St. Pete Junior College with a guy named Paul Beavers. He worked for Honeywell Corporation back in then, and he taught all kinds of educational classes and things like that. I had him for a speech, um, a, a speech course that I was doing. I was probably only, I don't know, 20 or 21 years old. And I really didn't care about school, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a really good student because I always wanted to be the best at everything I did. But it, it was not that big a deal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that speech class, he, he gave us some assignments. And I did something I was uncomfortable with. And I didn't do as well. You know what I mean? I felt like I was having to make it up a little bit. And he came to me and he goes, hey, I want, what, he goes, what's your interest? What, is, what are you good at speaking about? And I was like, well, I love to fish. He goes, I want you to do the next one on fishing. So I did the next one on fishing, and everybody was looking at me. They were like, they couldn't believe it. He goes, I think you found the answer of what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And I've always, I've always thought about that. Life to the rescue. Yes. The uh, pool pump turned on. The fountains are going off. And the it's kind of it sounds like Tom Rowland's intro. <laughs> <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit of the white water yeah, sound. That's fine. It's not. But but. Uh, but yeah, that's that's that was the initiation of me feeling comfortable in front of people mm-hmm. and speaking in in front of them, and then it just seemed like these small sponsors that I had relationships with, mm-hmm. they would they would always ask me, "Hey, do you think you could do this for us?" And then I and and the more that I did it, the easier it got. Uh, I was going to Bass Pro Spring Flings and doing things for Falcon Rods and. Um, Speaking of my old friend John Oliverio back in the day, is is sharp and smart and business acumen beyond belief that he had. One of the things that he did not enjoy doing was speaking in public hmm. uh, on things off the cuff uh, or doing radio shows. It's like, yeah, I just, I really don't want to do that. He goes, would you do that for me? And hell, I was, I was like, yeah, I'll do anything for you, John. And just, mm-hmm. you just ask, I'll show up and do it. And if it's, if it's running my mouth, well, that's what I do best. I'm ready to do it. So it, it became evident and obvious to everyone, even if it weren't to me that early on, I was going to be the kind of guy that was going to be a deliverer of the message. Mm-hmm. Um, do and, you remember what your first speech was in college on that? Uh, I don't. It was probably. Oh, I would love it, to see it, that. it was probably about trout fishing because I I loved mountain to, or sea sea okay sea trout. I love I loved catching trout. Um, growing up, we didn't really care so much about red fishing. Red fishing wasn't that big a deal. They were kind of like a fish that was in the way of catching sea trout and snook. It's like we all wanted to catch snook or sea trout, and then red fishing was just kind of red fishing. Uh, they can't, they happen by accident. And at, as things evolved, if you were to ask people now, so what, you know, what, what do you know, Captain C.A. about Captain C.A.? Oh, he was, he was a redfish guy. That's what they think of because mm-hmm. of all the competitive fishing on redfish mm-hmm. tours back in my earlier part of my career and all the destination travel I do to Louisiana and redfish have become kind of the bass of 
of salt water. They really mm-hmm. have. I mean, they readily eat artificials and flies, and they're 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 available twelve months a year to catch. You know, mm-hmm. in every size, whether you catch small ones or big ones. Where sea trout, you know, there's certain times of year when you're going to be able to catch the bigger ones and you focus on that time of year on those those are the seasonal tendencies and then snook have their periods during the year where they're it's like wow you know march and april are awesome for snook fishing and summertime on the beaches and the passes and inlets are awesome for snook fishing but in the dead of winter you know unless you're in the back of some river or golf course pond or something like that Mm -hmm. you're struggling a little bit more to catch them so you don't focus on them as much you focus on another species and that's that's kind of the nice thing about being a saltwater guide or a saltwater enthusiast is the fact that if one species isn't really the deal there's always a ripcord species to run to to go catch there's Mm -hmm. always a backup and and that's that's the difference between sweetwater fishing and salty fishing Mm -hmm. so one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was the how you think through learning something and then turning around and teaching it. And I know for me, like when I teach something, it helps me learn it. It's a way to kind of force myself to better think through it, but let's do a fun exercise. Sure. Okay. Let's, let's say that, you know, you got a phone call and from now you're going to do an entire season of flats class okay. on salmon fishing. And let's just assume you don't know anything about, and I, I do not know anything okay. about salmon fishing. So now all of a sudden you got to create a season of flats class. It's going to be all salmon, Alaska, real, real bear grill stuff with you sleeping in animal carcasses and all the whole, the The whole whole experience, the whole Alaskan experience, Canada experience. And, um, so now you're going to have to prep for the season and you're going to have to learn everything you can about salmon fishing. And then you're going to have to turn around and teach. How, How would you try to work through that and go through that? Well, I think the best teacher's experience, it's always going to be like, I, first of all, I'd be really excited about doing it, believe it or not. I wouldn't be apprehensive about it. If I were younger, I would be apprehensive about it because you're worried about the vulnerability of not looking very smart or mm. this, that, or the other thing. As you get older, you don't worry about stuff like that nearly as much. Hell, I learn stuff all the time from guys mm. that are younger than me. I go fishing with. I'll, I'll go fishing with guys like Greg Peterson, and I've been catching the same fish he's been catching forever, but he'll do one little thing different. Mm-hmm. I go, hmm, that's something I haven't seen before. So, you know, of course, I'm sure I've showed him a million things too. But that's, it's just, I, I would embrace it. I'd probably, knowing what I know now as an older, as an older angler, the first thing I think is, I guess I'm going to spend $12,000 and go fishing in Alaska for about a month and try to learn as much as I possibly can from as many of the people that do this as I can. So it's just, I'm not going to learn one way. I want to learn five ways Mm -hmm. and, and do that. I would not rely. And this is what I tell everybody. And I, and I'm the biggest talking head in the inshore world. Mm -hmm. Maybe, um, I do not believe you can learn anything from just reading a book or just watching a YouTube or just watching a television show. Mm -hmm. I think you actually have to feel it, smell it, touch it, do it to really become any, even a little bit of an expert at anything. Sure, you can learn enough to get going, but I I think you actually have to experience things to understand what you're getting. Because there's so many things, they just teach you how to, well, this is how you catch salmon. You need this rod, you need this kind of line. We're fishing this stretch of the river. They don't tell you about the stuff that you that you really need to know, like, 
you know you got to have these certain shoes to walk on these slippery rocks or you're going to end up twisting your ankle, falling over the water and mm -hmm. drowning. And by the way, there's there's probably some grizzly bears around here, so it'd probably be a good idea to have a sidearm or a can of bear spray. They don't tell those are all the things that you would not know unless you go do it. Mm -hmm. So that that's the kind of I guess attitude and take on it that I would do. It's like, well, I guess I'm going to spend $12,000 and just go live in and and on, fish with all these and guys. Fish with all these guys. How and, would you try to write it all? Like, would you just try to take it in, or would you try to write it down? In the, I, you know, you in saw you or? saw that notepad yeah. in there because I'm, even though I have iPads and I have a Mac and I have all that stuff, I if you were to watch me type, Hunter, it would be painful. You, mm -hmm. You'd rather watch anything happen other than watch me type, hunt, peck, hunt, peck. I write everything down in a notebook, and I've got pages and pages. But what that does by writing it down is it reinforces it or burns it in my memory mm -hmm. a lot. Because people say, well, how do you come up with these classes for Flats Class University? Or how do you come up with this? And you know what I do is there's, I, I, I like to do these mind map things where I go, here's the idea. The idea is speckle trout. And then I'll draw a line up and I'll put a couple of sentences up there. Um, migration, trout migration. I'll put a line over here, tackle, and I'll put a line over here, and and it it, it may it may say seasonal tendencies, and o and over here it may see my favorite lures, and then I add to all that stuff, and then they so it's almost like a network, yeah, it's yeah. nebulous stuff, and when I when I look at it, after I look at that little mind map that I've created, then I just start writing pages about each one, hmm. and it all just comes together. It's just kind of a natural flow for me. And, and then only because I've been doing it for so long, it is easy for me to talk about it in front of people. It's not like I have to look at my notes or, or do anything. It's like, well, I've been, I've been putting this stuff together now for the last week, and now I'm going to stand in front of you know, an audience, and I'm going to talk to them about it. And it's not going to sound mechanical. It's going to sound very natural. And, and, and there, are, there are, you know, that's, that's the way I learn Mm -hmm. And then, then the second part of that is how do you communicate it? Because that's the trick to being successful doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. You not only have to know it, because a lot of us know it. Mm -hmm. are, I, can, I can give you a laundry list of guides that are way the hell better than I am mm -hmm. that know what I know. But then how do you take that and give it to people that are novices or intermediates that are wanting to learn that? How, how do you convey that message to them? And the way that you do it is you make it as relatable as possible. You, you even become a little self-deprecating so that they understand that you're vulnerable a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then you change the way you say things. When you want them to remember something, you, you kind of add something to it that will stick to their brain because most of the time when I go listen to people, I mean, they sound like a monotone you know, I tune them out after three minutes. I'm trying to keep my eyes open. I was like, this mm -hmm. is not animated enough for me. It's not. But you change the inflection in your voice. You make a story that's attached to it, especially if it's an important point. You know, it's like, this is what you really need to know. I want you to pay attention now. Mm -hmm. And then you say it, and then they do. And then when they go out of there, they're like, there's no way they can remember everything you said. Mm -hmm. But they'll remember the five things that you really impressed upon them. Mm -hmm. and they'll And they'll talk about it. Yeah. 
And then that is how this whole network has grown for me over 20 years. I mean, I've been doing this since the first fishing schools I was doing was in 1999, Hmm. the year my son was born. And here we are in 2020. I'm still teaching fishing schools. I mean, Mm -hmm. in the wintertime, it seems like I'm going somewhere to teach a fishing school almost every week. Mm -hmm. And then the show does it. And then I'm generating content now uh, for YouTube and for for IGTV and, and all the other things we do. And I was like, do I really have that much to say? Am I regurgitating a lot of this stuff? But as I do it, I change too because techniques change, baits change. Mm-hmm. Everything changes all the time. Areas aren't as, as viable as they were before, so you have to fish them a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, and and a, a lot of that stuff is fishing with other guides uh, on your days off. A lot of that stuff is visiting other places and realizing that you can take a technique from there and bring it here and it will work here as well. Carolina, you know, Carolina rigging. We did speed jigs that were offshore jigging stuff at a bridge. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I could not believe we were catching fish on offshore equipment. So took it to the Skyway and started doing it and started catching grouper and snapper there doing it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But we were catching redfish and Destin doing it. So it's, it's like you think outside the box. Yeah. And I learn a lot of stuff from the bass world too because I'm kind of a... Uh, I don't know, a closet bass head. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I enjoy bass fishing and I, I, I have friends that are competitive anglers in that world. And some of the stuff that they do to catch fish uh, is just, it's just the crazy out of the box stuff. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, that probably won't work like the Nico rig, mm-hmm. but I can catch a fish on a Nico rig. I can catch a fish on a wacky worm rig. I, ca- I, I do catch them that way. Yeah. Am I going to make that very popular in saltwater? Probably not. But, it's the challenge of doing it mm-hmm. that gets me excited about sharing it. To you, like when I was at ICAST, um, because I, I grew up bass fishing, but solely my bass kind of repertoire was, you know, okay. Um, and this is very Tallahassee kind of where I'm at. But, you know, of course, we, we do frogs. Of course, mm-hmm. we'll do soft plastics with certain flukes or worms. And then we'll, the extent of like the hard baits would be like maybe, you know, a few, you know, spinning rigs or something like that mm-hmm. and um you know some crankbaits but when i'm at icast i'm looking around and i'm like this it, there's gotta be in this facility a, a million different lures where's the line between overthinking it is there an, a, a, such thing as overthinking it i don't think there is such a thing as over overthinking it everyone wants to have a silver bullet they want to invent the next thing the whopper plopper something that's going to change the fishing world turn it on its end Um, the reality is is most of its marketing to catch anglers and not really catch fish how can you tell the two apart you think Uh, i think when you fish long enough like we fished with some pretty crude equipment when we were growing up, nothing as crude as guys like Flip Pallet and Chico and Stu and those guys fishing. Mm-hmm. You look at some of the lures they have hanging in their garages and stuff like that, and you're like, really? Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, that looks like a piece, an apparatus that would be in my grandma's kitchen, and you yeah. caught fish on that? Mm-hmm. These fish would never hit that now. But I can't, and you as a fly fisherman hunter, I mean, you're throwing deer hair and feathers and rabbit tail. The fish think it's a fish. They think it's a. It, they think it's prey. I throw bucktail jigs a lot. I throw some of the simplest plastics that just don't look like anything. They look like a turd. Mm-hmm. They basically look like, well, this must have been the, like the piece that was between two regular pieces that looked like a real fish. This was the connector yeah. piece, but they catch fish. 
So I think that's where we overthink it. We're trying to to make lures look like the real McCoy in the field. It's mm -hmm. like that thing looks just like a fish. I'm gonna spend seventeen dollars and buy that. Mm -hmm. The reality is is the fish doesn't know that. You know what I mean? And if you're throwing that lure that looks just like everything else, what are the chances if there's ten thousand pieces of bait on that flat, what are the chances of them eating yours over the other ten thousand pieces? Well, I always, I always like to say, well, it's one in 10,000. That's mm -hmm. what my statistics class would teach me. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so you got to throw something different. So yeah, that makes sense. Throw something chartreuse. Throw something pink. So throw the old woody woodpecker, the okay. redhead with the white body, because those are the ones that predator fish are going to look and say, hmm, I can see it, and I'm going to hit it. Okay. Do, do you have set progressions that you go through like on different species? So like, I know like a lot of people become ritualistic and so I've fished with people and it's like, we're going to start with this color and if that doesn't work, then the first thing we're going to do is we're going to try to go a little smaller, same color. Then we're, do you have like set little progressions? Well, there, or? there are certain rules, you know, like guidelines that, that I like to go through. Um, one, usually it's the conditions that dictate what I want to use. So, for instance, if it's overcast uh, and there's a little bit of riffle on the water, uh, you're going to need to use something a little larger, something that's going to show up from a little greater distance or at least show up in a signature in the water that's going they're going to feel it from a greater distance because they're not going to be able to see horizontally through the water if they're sight predators like trout or snook as far. Um, I might go to a bicolor bait at that point because I realize that contrasting baits are going to show up a lot more than a solid bait. And then, and then sometimes it's color and tempo that, that matter, or if you're going to have something with a rattle in it. But on a clear day, you may, you're going to naturally drop the profile down. You're going to pick something that's more organic in color that's going to maybe match the bottom a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's basically the conditions that dictate what I start with, so I don't always start with white. People say, well, if it isn't a white lure, it's not the right lure. You know, mm -hmm. or, oh, I only throw chartreuse. If you're not throwing chartreuse, it's got no use. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a million country boy sayings about yeah. all this stuff. But the reality is the best lure and the best color for you is the one that you believe in the most. If that happens to be the fish, you know, the, the lure that catches the most fish with you over time, then that's what you're going to have. I, I, got, I see guys open their tackle bags, and 50 to 60% of the tackle box is white. And that's what they want to use. They want to use a white lure. That's what's always caught fish for them. And in most cases, you know, odds are 52% of the time it works. It's a, game, it's a numbers game. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of days a dark lure works way better than a light lure. Or a smaller lure will work better than a bigger lure, mm -hmm. and it's just and it's covering water too. It's like if you don't know a body of water, you may have to do what I call power fish a little harder. So you're probably going to use baits that that are head weighted that cast a little further, and you can retrieve them a little quicker so that you can make more numbers of casts in a given period of time over a greater zone. Um, you're not going to go out there and throw a plastic shrimp on those days and yeah. think that you're going to catch a fish. You're going to need to throw a paddle tail. Or you're going to need to throw a spoon. Or you're going to need to throw a heavier weighted subwalk bait that you can walk quicker. You know, something that doesn't have as wide a walk. It might be like a mirroring that you can hard flash. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be something like that. I only know those things because I have screwed it up so many times yeah. over so many years. I understand immediately when I need to make the change. Um, and, and then the reaction of fish in the water, you look and you're like, wow, we're blowing these fish out when we get right up on top of them. That means they're not articulating their fins. They're not looking to, to eat. They're mm -hmm. sitting still. 
and my boat, you know, the, the Hell's Bay skiff is quiet enough. It's like, and they're just sitting down and they're blowing off and they're smoking off. It's like, these fish aren't aggressive, so we're going to have to come up with a new plan. We're either going to have to move out a little bit deeper or get on a point where there's some water or find some structure and catch some fish that are a little bit more willing to eat. But all those are because of experience because you've you've failed so many times. That's mm-hmm. the biggest teacher is failure. You know, when you're keeping a logbook, the best thing you can do is put all your failed trips in it. Because mm-hmm. if you're looking for the coffee table version of your thing where it's you're a hero every time, yeah, you know, you don't learn anything from those trips. Those trips, the, the the barometer was perfect. The moon was in the right spot. You know, the fish were on a, they were on a huge sea. You know, shrimp run or something like that, or a mullet mm-hmm. run. You know, it it doesn't really matter. Uh, everyone's going to be successful on those days. It's those days when everyone's like, damn, everyone caught a tarpon today. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But then there are those days when no one catches and only one or two guides catch them, mm-hmm. and they, they were doing something different. Yeah, because someone is always catching them. Someone. Yeah. And they're eating. They're That's eating. what somebody told me. They're yeah. like, they're because you know you hear that a lot in the tarpon community. They're just not eating. Yeah. They're they have to eat. Yeah. They, you know, we're not. They're traveling. If they're, they're traveling, swimming, yeah. they're eating. They're eating. They got to. You yeah. know, and you know, for me, it's funny that you said that because you know I'm I'm relatively new to tarpon fishing, and it's like I felt like what I had to do is make every mistake or not every mistake. Cause I got a lifetime of, to make every mistake, but every, uh, like a progression of mistakes. So your first mistake, you know, is going to be about just trying to get the fly to them. Then you finally get the flight. Well, not, your next mistake has to be about presentation. That's right. The next mistake has to be about your hook set. That's right. The next mistake has to be about how you fight the fish, or how you the, clear, or how you clear the clear line, the line. Yeah, because it's getting behind the reel. <laughs> the next mistake is going to be, you know, how you, you know, maybe trying to bring, you know, trying to horse them into whatever it is. You know, you go through and you learn to you learn to love and be okay not just be okay with making mistakes but learn to love making mistakes it feels like a big puzzle piece and when you're putting a puzzle together that's the way you learn you take this piece and you put it up didn't fit okay all right that's exactly right um and the over uh, one of the things that scott mccalla he stopped by my house last week and he was excited that i was interviewing you and he goes i'm he's like the the guy's a machine with how much he cast he's just like boom 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 boom, like a just non-stop just going it's a um, gatling gun with me because i'd I love power. I because of tournament days, I just love power fishing. But it allows you to cover more ground, and and one of the questions I had when thinking about that, and I've always just felt this myself, was for you, when do you know it's time to make a change? Like, how long do you give something? Um, I like to let the fish tell me when I need to make the change if I'm getting enough refusals, because you know. 85% of my fishing is where we can see a reaction because mm-hmm. this because of the polling aspect of it. But there are t- there are times when I feel like a bait is too too what I would call too loud. So I'll change the way I swim it or maybe I'll I'll uh, I'll change and I'll go like you said earlier, I'll go one size down. You know, I'll try something mm-hmm. one size down. But, but typically, there are tried and true lures that work for me, like bucktail jigs and paddle tails, where I know if you put me on the bow of the boat and I'm going to fish against a guy that doesn't understand that today's going to be a hard day and we're going to power fish, I'm going to try to make an effort to get 20 to 25% more casts in than he does. And at the end of the day, that will equate just just like cold calling sales yeah. that will equate to five or six fish 
that he'll never have a chance to catch. And I likely will end up, he'll go, damn, I don't know how you, I don't know how you caught, I don't, how did you do it? And, and all it was, was extending casting distance and, and working a bait quicker and not trying to catch, slick catch the fish that are tougher to catch, just catch the aggressive predator. Oftentimes, it's the speed that hooks the fish because he doesn't have enough time to think about it. It's just a reaction. It goes by him and, and, and the, it's like, that's running away from me. It came at the right angle and that's the trigger because it's not coming into me. I can see it with both eyes. It's going away. I'm excited and I'm chasing it. And I think a lot of us think too much into it and they try to move the bait too slow. And then the fish comes up on the bait and tips on the bait and then the fish is looking at it and then they think, oh, he can't see it and they try to move it. Trust me, that fish sees everything, feels everything, smells everything about that bait. There's no way he does not see the bait. If he tips on it, he's he's likely going to eat it. So don't move it. And a lot of the baits now are so alive. Whether it, with flies, I mean, you have the natural hair of deer or yeah. the zonker tail or whatever, and they breathe. Even the hydrodynamics of the fish coming up upon the fly will move the fly enough to make him think it's alive. All of a sudden, a little a leg moves on it or something like that. In in artificial fishing, which I'm known for. Uh, a lot of that Elastec plastic that I use from Z-Man, that stuff is so soft and so stretchy and so alive. And it's buoyant to a certain degree where if you put it on the right type of jig head, whether that be a shaky head, a football head, a mushroom head, it'll stand straight up. And you, all you got to do is just tap the line and the thing's just quivering. It's just, yeah. it's just quivering like a rattlesnake. And they'll just pounce on it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't even have to move this stuff and you can dead stick it and catch fish on it. So it's, it's, it's really, that's the science behind some of this stuff. And I think we, we put a lot of thought into it and I'm guilty of it as well. Cause I, I try to, I try to skin a cat a hundred different ways, mm-hmm. but, but the reality of it is when I'm fishing with, with guys like Scott McCalla, it's like, Hey, just, just put me in a zone you think they're here, and I, I, I will make 1,000 casts. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you look at my hands. When you look at my hands, one this hand is thicker than this hand. This hand's crooked with arthritis from holding the rod. And that's from that's from making thousands of casts and the violent you know rod yeah. speed generation that you create of doing it over and over. You don't do that with fly fishing. You know what I mean? You, yeah. you're, you're holding the fly and looking for – you're not blind casting like that. Um, because I, I fish a bass mentality. It's like he who makes the most casts is the one who wins. Yeah. And and I know that. So that's what I do. I just I just I'm I'm a machine when it comes to to doing that. But as I've gotten older, you know, I'm on the back of the boat and I'm pulling people around. I'm watching them fish, and it, there's nothing that drives me more crazy, especially mm-hmm. if we're doing TV or something like that. Is the guy that I'm pulling around is waiting. For something to happen before he casts, I was like, "It's and it's a day like today. Today we have overcast. We have a lot of wind. Um, it's not going to be easy to see fish. And and I don't want it to come down to well, you you only had a hundred opportunities today to, to 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 maybe make a cast to catch a fish. When if you were throwing eight hundred times like I would, we would already caught a few. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but that's that's me. Is everyone thinks I'm very patient? Yeah, the way my demeanor is on the boat. But when it comes to catching fish on the boat, I want to catch the fish on the boat. You know, I'm I'm the guy that it's like, come on, we want to catch the fish on the boat. I'll I'll be as supportive as I can, but we gotta we gotta catch a fish. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 
before I got a couple of segments I want to do after this, but I guess the, the tendency when I'm sometimes on the bow is like you're, you don't see anything. And so you're afraid that you're going to cast, you're going to speak something or that you're going to cast and you're going to, then you're going to have, you know, your lure or your line way out and then boom, now, and now a fish shows up. But I mean, you would rather, if, it, if you're not seeing them well, you would rather just start that's going right. for it. That's right. Then just, then just waiting. That's okay. right. It, I mean, it'll be obvious if the opportunities are there, whether, uh, you know, a little bait skips, a, like shrimp pops across the surface or a little needlefish is being chased by something or glass minnows are, are evident or something like that. Or you see a few dust offs and you know, okay, wow, there are fish here. Then you can be a little bit more cavalier and judicious about how you cast. But when, when you don't know, when you just don't know or conditions are such that it's going to be hard to know, then I'm all about playing the, the fast and furious card every time because I know it works. Mm -hmm. I fished enough tournaments over 10 years to know um, and consistently finished high to know that it's, it's about presentations. It's about the number of mm -hmm. presentations, how much water you can cover, and only catching the aggressive fish. And, 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 and it, can, it can be done on every trip. Mm -hmm. uh, there are rarely trips that you would allow yourself to get skunked because you know you're going to make enough cast to keep from being skunked. Uh, and you can't beat yourself. That's the first person that beats you is yourself. You know, mm -hmm. you start second guessing what you're doing. Um, but no, I mean, uh, there are times when fish show up close to the boat and I'm out. And I'm like, mm. yeah. and when and when we were, you know, in team events back in the day, Redfish Cup and FLW Redfish Series and stuff, things like that. One of the goals was for one of us to be on the outcast and one of us to be bringing it in so that would never happen. There was always mm -hmm. one out, one in, one out, one in. And almost like those old movies where they have the French Foreign Legion had two guys kneeling down with yeah. rifles and guys standing up with rifles and the front row would shoot. And then as soon yeah, as they yeah. started loading, then the back row would shoot. And that way, there's no one's out of ammunition or no one's reloaded before it That's happens. That's a great visual for that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. So the next segment, I told you, I recently uh, came on with Traeger, and I really want to talk about cooking and, oh, it, you know, I, I, time in the kitchen with, because that was one of the things that kept happening was like, most guys who have the mentality that you have or got, you know, any guide that's serious is pretty serious in the kitchen or on the grill. And I know that you like to smoke some stuff. What is, what's your favorite thing to do on the grill to smoke? I would probably say ribs is my favorite thing to do. Can you talk me through a little few of the? If uh, you're yeah, what what we like to do, uh, and we just did we just did ribs the other day. Is I like to brine them for overnight, okay. and uh, so I I usually take one of the yetis, uh, open open the tundra up, and I fill it half with uh, ice. You know, I break the ice up pretty good. Uh -huh. I'll put a little bit of salt water in there so it's kind of slurry-like. And then I'll take either Coca-Cola or Dr. Pepper, and I'll dump like, I don't know, six or eight cans in there so it, all that sugar is in the water. Okay. And then I just dump the ribs in the cooler, shut it up, and uh, let it sit in there overnight. Okay. Then the next morning, I'll take the ribs out of there. And I'll take a piece of paper towel and I'll, I'll get a sharp knife and I'll pull that silver skin off the back of the ribs. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I do that, then I'll probably put them on a plate a little bit, pat them all dry with a paper towel. Mm -hmm. And then we'll put kosher salt on them 
mm-hmm. a pretty good amount of kosher salt on them and some uh, pepper. And then let that kind of open the meat up a little bit, and we'll just put them in the fridge for about an hour. Then we pull them back out. And now I take yellow mustard, just French's yellow mustard, mm-hmm. and I smear it all over the top of the ribs and over the back of the ribs. And then we'll take one of the barbecue sauces. We like a lot of sweet heat around here, mm-hmm. so we'll use something that has some sugar in it, but it'll have cayenne in it, and that's yeah. a lot of the, the barbecue rubs that we like to use. That way, later on, when you put barbecue sauce on at the end, it, it has that real sweet and tangy taste to it. But the mustard does a really good job. The yeah. mustard is pretty key. So after that, I'll, I'll come out and I'll turn, I'll turn my smoker on and I set them in there at about 275 degrees and I let, them, I let them go for just without foil or anything. I just let them go in there for about two and a half hours. So mm-hmm. they'll sit in there for two and a half hours smoking and they'll start looking good. About halfway through that, I'll go in there and I'll spritz them a little bit with some apple juice or apple mm-hmm. cider just to make sure they're brown. As soon as that's that sex that that is done and two and a half hours has gone by and I, I'll stick like a thermo pin in them or something mm-hmm. like that to see where they are temperature wise because they got to be about 160 overall. I bring them back in into the into the kitchen, and that that's when we usually put them in foil. And I like to put them. What we do is we take like parquet margarine and brown mm-hmm. sugar and stuff, and we set it in the bottom of the foil and we set them writ, meat side down in that foil, and then wrap them back up. And then we put them up in there upside down for about another hour, hour and a half where they're wrapped up in their own juices with all that butter and sugar, that brown sugar. So they sit in there again. And then probably in the last, what I would call like 30 minutes or so, I'll take them out of that foil, out of that juice, and I'll lay them meat side up, rib side down. And we'll baste them or mop them with barbecue sauce. It might be stubs. It might be sweet baby rays. But it... Because we're, you know, Florida people, yeah. we like the sweeter barbecue sauces mm-hmm. more than the warmer ones or the or the or the yellow sauce. My son loves the gold sauce, so sometimes we'll cut a section of ribs off and do those in gold. But uh, but we just paint that barbecue sauce on them, and just so it will caramelize a little bit, so that they're sticky. So we 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 make sure they're on. It's on there pretty thick. And in about another thirty or forty minutes, they're pretty much perfect. Yeah. And I mean, you can you can tell because the meat will kind of come back off the end of the bone a little bit, and mm-hmm. you can wiggle them. As soon as you can wiggle them, you know it's like, oh man, these things are. And everyone cannot wait to get Jeez. their hands on it. So, you were very ready for that question. It felt like I know. I feel. I feel like I'm spitting. <laughs> I'm very hungry right now. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I. I. That's. Yeah. But we love doing the barbecue stuff. The barbecue yeah. stuff is big. I use. I have a, a a gas cooker over here. This this fire disc of mine. And what we like to do is I'll I'll smoke meat in in that that pellet grill of mine and then I'll come over here and we'll do tater tots yeah. or we'll do caramelized onions and, and, and peppers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's perfect. And this thing is really good about, you know, browning up bread and things like that. So yeah. it, it's, it's pretty, ver- it's, it's amazingly versatile. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. I've seen a lot of popularity take off with those. That's a great, I'm going to, uh, one of the things I'm going to do is take some of the recipes I find from guys and put together like some video or not video, but pro- most likely photo. I, when, when I'm cooking, I'm not going to lie. I, I prefer like the, the kind of step-by-step, uh, like a, a blog post or not the video oh. where I have to like play, stop, play, stop, play, stop. But yeah. like I can just like uh, read through it, but you ought to, you need to start putting some of this in there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 
that's the thing. I mean, I, I don't cook anything in the house. My wife would not let me mess her yeah. kitchen up at all. So she did, because I take things out of cupboards yeah. and then I use them and then I go put them back and I put them back like two cupboards over. Yeah. You know, you would need a schematic chart to figure out where things well, go in there. Scott and I were talking too about, I like to see her stuff and I like black and stuff. And yeah. you know, that is, um, the best way to eat it and the best way to piss your wife off because you know, you're in there searing stuff. I, I joke, I have to take my smoke detectors down and everything. And so what I did was I invested in uh, like a burns matic blowtorch and right. I can sear with that. Oh, that's a and good then, idea. And then, and then my wife's, uh, you know, happier because she loves to eat it. It just, you know, I, and you know, you have like five or six friends over and you you got to sear a bunch of fish and you're just, blowing the kitchen out i mean yeah. it's just it looks yeah, like smoking it looks it. that's like why rolling I, stones hotel room or something yeah. you know <laughs> that's a good analogy to talk yeah. about drawing a picture yeah that's why i i only cook stuff out here and i like to cook stuff a lot i mean yeah. i for, for out here like we made some killer macaroni and cheese in an iron skillet out here in the smoker oh, yeah. when you smoke macaroni and cheese i mean it with bacon in it yeah. and breadcrumbs. That's what Stump was telling me. I, oh. I texted Jonathan Hamilton, who, you know, he's an old Florida guy too. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, what's your favorite Traeger recipe? And he gave me a, a list. Uh, but one of the things he said was his favorite was like, he said, just the mac and cheese. It's just, he goes, I know it doesn't seem like that, oh, that it, would be an answer that a grown man would give. But he goes, it's just good. You oh, know? yeah. Man, you, if you pork butter brisket and you can make, smoked macaroni and cheese with bacon and breadcrumbs and stuff. Oh, it's, no, I'm uh, very hungry yeah. now. All right. Re- ready for some rapid fire questions. Yeah, sure. We're going to have let's, fun with, we're going to have go. fun with these. Okay. W- what's been the hardest thing for you? Like as, as an educator, you've come across this thing and it, you just felt like you couldn't figure it out. The hardest thing I would say, probably the hardest thing for me is blue water stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's because it's, it's again, it's something that has to be a learned experience. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not natural. It's not easy to figure out. Um, and it's equipment intensive. And I would say if there's one thing when I'm asked questions about that and I do get rapid fire questions like on Monday night fishing, I do a live Instagram thing where I let people ask me any mm-hmm. questions and some of them ask me those questions and I, I'm the first to tell them, I was like, I don't know everything. But what I don't know, I'll probably make up, and it'll probably be believable. <laughs> yeah, the blue <laughs> but, water, yeah, for sure. But blue yeah. blue water was always something that tripped me up, and I've I go blue water fishing from time to time, but I'm always usually just doing it to mm-hmm. do. I just want to go king fishing with somebody, or I want to go. Uh, my wife caught a sailfish uh, oh, last cool. April, which yeah. was so much fun, and that that trip was more about her. Uh, I used to fish a little bit in the Cayman Islands, and we would do a lot of bottom fishing and things like that yeah. there. That kind that never really tripped my trigger, you know. It was just never. I, I was always a sight fisherman, a wade fisherman. Hell, it took me until I was like twenty seven or twenty eight years old to even want to be in a boat. A boat for me was just some place to go to a flat where I could get out and wade. But mm-hmm. I'm six foot five, and I'm back then I was really thin. I only probably weighed one hundred and ninety pounds, mm-hmm. so I was like a blue heron going down the flat. So mm-hmm. wade fishing was, and I could get so close to fish to catch them, yeah. and. But, you know, time's evolved. I'm 230 pounds now, and I'll, I'd rather be in a polling skiff, staying nice yeah. and dry and out of the water and not having to deal with all the other stuff that goes on with being in the water. But, uh, but yeah, I'd say blue water fishing would probably be the number one thing that would stick me the most okay. teaching anyone about something like that. What's your favorite snack to eat in the boat? Well, it used to be chips and salsa because that stuff would just – it would it – would, it, 
I love lime chips mm-hmm. and the heat from the salsa, but and that, it hits. I mean, that yeah. saltiness on the chips. Oh, on the water. man, when you're on the water, I mean, I could eat a, I could wreck a bag, a whole yeah. bag of Tostitos. That stuff, that stuff would be gone. And uh, but but now, on honestly, I usually just bring fruit. Yeah, I just bring fruit now, or uh, a lot of these protein bars, like these Quest bars. I eat a lot of that stuff now. But yeah, fried chicken's hard to beat. Yep. It, but again, you know the the acid reflux gets me. But fried chicken be pretty hard to beat, and, and or or some really cold salsa um, or pico de gallo with with those lime chips. Yeah, because you crave you know it. You crave that salt. When it's you're hard to hide acid reflux when you're pulling. You know. Yeah, that's, a, that's not a good not a good combo. Yeah, uh, we keep tums in the back. But back um, the the uh, an apple like there's something about an apple that. If you're not feeling great, yeah, like you're that feeling settles, tired, yeah. I guess it's the sugar and the fiber, or Pro- prob- you know, Pro- probably. I mean, I drink tons of water now, yeah, and we've been we've been on this big kick the last couple of years trying to eliminate as much plastic as we can in the boat. Mm-hmm. So it started off with just me bringing two half gallon Yeti canteens mm-hmm. and drinking out of those myself, and not putting my water in the boat anymore. I already had those filled up, and I like to throw magnesium powder in them or electrolyte powder in them because i'm the guy sweating in the back of the boat and then the clients you know they'd bring their sodas and they'd bring their you know i'd have a couple of six or eight waters in there to complement what they brought but now i've noticed that some of the clients that i'm fishing after me setting the example of those canteens now they're bringing canteens and uh and that's something I'm going to try to encourage in 2020. That's one of the New Year's resolutions I'm trying to make is to try to say, hey, man, if you've got a Yeti canteen or whatever canteen you want to bring, bring that. And mm-hmm. that way you can put whatever you want in it, save space in the box for mm-hmm. one, and it'll stay cold all day. And we don't got to worry about where we're going to put this trash. Mm-hmm. Because as careful as you are with those plastic bottles, whether you're breaking them down and throwing them in your live well to dump later on, inevitably if one's half full and sitting on the edge of the boat while you're fighting a fish or something like that it mm-hmm. ends up in the drink and you got to try to go chase it down mm-hmm. and i look at it you know when i'm out on the water and in areas where there's lots of people fishing you see that kind of trash all the time i yeah. mean it's everywhere and it has to stop i mean the only one that can really stop it is us mm-hmm. so set a good example if everyone had that mentality for 2020 we probably eliminate a lot of problems on the water yeah and if you're listening to this and you have you want to do your own questions you can go to monday night fishing yeah monday night fishing yeah Yeah. if you go to instagram live monday night fishing we we love it's we try to pick a topic now honestly because we felt like some of the questions were a little bit redundant after we did it for two or three months yeah um, but we kept that theme up going for a while. And then now I just pick, I just like, Hey, this is what the Monday night fishing topic is about. These are what I want the questions to be. And everyone respects it. Every once in a while, you'll get someone else throw in there. What's your favorite shark to catch or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. There is no favorite shark for me to catch really. But, yeah. um, but most of the time it's wintertime fishing right now. I try to do things that are relevant to the period that we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it'll be spinning rod tactics. Uh, maybe it'll be, hey, you want to learn how to throw a casting reel? And mm-hmm. we'll talk about casting rod actions and things like that. That'll match the, the baits that you throw. And we'll, we'll just, we try to make it a little bit technical, but we try to make it a little bit fun too. You know, over yeah. Christmas, we were talking about the perfect gifts for anglers because none of us want to get those gifts that we don't want. Yeah. So 
it was kind of it's kind of different. I'm looking forward to uh, to this year Monday night Monday night fishing has grown quite a bit. Yeah. At any one time there could be from 60 to 150 people on there, you mm-hmm. know, throwing stuff out. I can't answer all the questions, so I, I only do it for 30 minutes. But then as it sits on the story for 24 hours, you'll notice that there's like five or six or 700 people that have watched it. Yeah. And that's kind of refreshing because you know they're interested in it, mm-hmm. and it's hard to make someone available that much i'm trying to do it every monday night i mean there's been a few mondays we've had to miss because of certain events and things like that um but it's something i enjoy doing mm-hmm. uh, just like you enjoy doing this podcast and yeah i'm anxious to get our podcast going as well yeah so. well that was my next thing so you were talking about you had a mentor who would always say okay what's next what's next tell okay. us some about what's next what's coming up with the show university podcast so the show the show itself has always been the centerpiece of of our of our stuff at flats class and uh you know it started off early on with live fishing schools and that kind of morphed into the show later on and now the show is going into season 14 so i don't want to be the guy that's just the tv talking head you know i don't want to be that guy oh well he's been on for 25 years you know that kind of gets old it's hard to remain relevant and uh, in the moment when you're that guy that's been on that long because mm-hmm. you've done everything like eight times now. So it's like reading those magazines where you know every every March and April it's going to be a sailfish story or something like that. Yeah. So it gets old. Um, and then younger people are wanting stuff that are more evergreen, true. So social media for us has exploded. So now it's Flats Class TV, it's YouTube and all the stuff that comes along with the other platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, in October of last year, we started online fishing courses because mm-hmm. not everyone can come to the live classes. So now we do Flats Class University, and those live on waypointtv.com as well. Uh, coming next in February will be the Flats Class podcast where we're doing something similar to you, but it'll mm-hmm. be a little bit different. It'll probably be more educational stuff for us because mm-hmm. you're telling the backstory behind the personalities where I'm probably going to be reaching into um, asking guys like Mark Daniels Jr. as like, so... Square bill, crankbait fishing. I want to know everything you know about it. I want everyone that listens to this podcast to know everything about square bill fishing. And do you ever? And then I might throw a few things about saltwater in there and how mm-hmm. it could cross over. But that's what the Flats Class podcast is going to be. And then later on, probably in April or May, we're actually going to start our new Flats Class Nation platform, which mm-hmm. is going to be kind of a subscription-based platform, which will be, I think, I think that's going to be a really good exclusivity thing mm-hmm. for us. Uh, so there's going to be a couple of pillars to the business now. You know, before, I always felt like the show was kind of like a monopod. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're trying to hold the camera steady. Everything's got to go perfect. you got to have good shows. you got to have a good guest host. And then when we started Flats Class University, it's like, okay, well, this thing's got two legs now. It's a little sturdier. Mm-hmm. I think with the podcast being the third leg, the mm-hmm. social media being the fourth leg, now we got a rock-solid chair. And then, you know, adding a fifth a fifth leg, all that is that's like adding a backrest with Flats Cast Nation. So, yeah, I feel I feel as if we're in a really good position going into 2020, and we are rebranding the show. So the mm-hmm. logo is not going to look the same anymore. You guys have seen that CA logo that like I've got here on my cup. Mm-hmm. You've been seeing that for over a year. That's the new Flats Class logo. Yeah, we're going away from the old stuff, mm-hmm. and it's 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 new. We're the show is shot differently now. Everything's going to be innately different with the show um we we shot a show with meredith mccord Mm -hmm. um she's amazing amazing person in her field 
uh, IGFA record holder, and I know you're a fly fishing fan, mm-hmm. so you'll definitely want to tune into that one. Oh, yeah. We fished with a young Hell's Bay guide who's another fly fishing guide, but he's a light tackle guide as well named Jeremy Melhoff in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, interesting guy. Um, the dynamic between him and I, because he's, he's almost half my age, um, was, was pretty cool. Um, but you know, we fished the crazy, we were fishing redfish and I think even he was surprised how many we caught. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous and everything was caught on micro baits on Ned rigs, mm-hmm. um, and fishing among casting reels. Not, I mean, you think, oh, you're going to throw, you're going to throw micro baits that are on one tenth of an ounce jig heads. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to be throwing some four pound or six pound braid. Now we were throwing them on 15 pound braid on casting reels, catching them. So mm-hmm. pretty cool show beautifully shot um we had the perfect day to do it i i'm proud of that piece of work that we put together so all that stuff is getting ready to launch so 2020 is going to be a really big year for flats class i think people think wow things have changed here uh and that's what i want because if you're not excited as the guy behind it how is anyone else going to be excited? And I felt like in 2018 and 2019, I was kind of slowing down and not staying as focused as I needed to. And I felt like things were flattening out a little bit. But I'll be honest, the guy that, that has made the biggest difference in my business has been my son, Cameron. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cameron has, has made the flame that's been there all along get a lot hotter, mm-hmm. almost like kerosene. And a lot of that is new ideas, fresh ideas, consistency, frequency, grinding even harder than ever before. And, uh, and now that he's become a bigger part of the business, we, I feel like we're stronger and better than ever. So, well, I'm excited for 2020. I, I appreciate you giving us time and oh. sitting down on the podcast. I look forward to listening to it. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, I think it's going to be good too. And, uh, and you're right. I mean, I've been excited about this since I met you at ICAST uh, last July and uh, the opportunity to do it and being a fan of the show it's going to be nice to be a part of it now captain's collective is is one of the things when people ask me in fact i was talking to some of the guys at new wave taxidermy i went over there to pick my wife's sailfish up a Mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago and one of the younger guys goes in there he goes yeah yeah i i listen to podcasts all the time we were talking about podcasts Mm -hmm. and it's like because he had one on while he was working yeah and I was like, have you ever listened to Tom Rollins or Hunter Levine's uh, Captain's Collective? You listen to any of the fishing podcasts? He, he listened to something else. Yeah. And I was like, you need, to, you need to go on Spotify or you need to go on Waypoint TV and listen to those podcasts. I was like, they have some really good guests, really good guests. I appreciate and, it. Uh, and so hopefully I'll help you spread the word about Captain's Collective. But yeah. proud to be a part. You got, you've had some impressive guys on this podcast. Thanks. And, well, uh, everybody, it's, it's been great. Everybody is – I love the community. That's been my favorite thing about it, the relationships, the friendships. And there's just – at the end of the day, there's a lot of guys just like you. They want to learn. They want to hear stories. They want to put it together as well. And like I told you earlier, you're a good interviewer um, because it's, it's not a distraction. You, you let the guest tell the story mm-hmm. and uh, you have a real even manner about you that, that instead of you, you being kind of it, I mean, it allows the audience mm-hmm. to really tune into who you're interviewing. And uh, I think both you and Tom do a really good job that way. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for today. All right. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to The Captain's Collective. 
We're grateful for your support. If you don't mind, please just take a few moments to share this podcast. And if you haven't already, please stop by our page on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. We're grateful for your support. We'll see you next time. This is the Captain's Collective. want to succeed you want to fish you want to be one of the greatest tune in to west marines life on the water presented by costa custom boats every saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m eastern on waypoint tv to go with like just full-blown redneck on these fish. This is like high-tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun, Sundays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.